0: The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison." We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people." And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor of the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: we are so far in this big, long study of Luke's theological history of the early church, this book called Acts, that we've been studying for, well, quite a few weeks now, and we'll do this and jump into today's teaching. See, in the big section that we're studying right now, from chapters three to chapter eight, Luke has been ping-ponging back and forth between stories of opposition to the Jesus movement that are opposition from outside the church. She's been going from one of those stories to a tension inside the church story, back and forth, back and forth. We just finished one of those uh, internal tensions in the church stories. It was the threat to the unity of the church that was represented by Ananias and Sapphira that we looked at last week. Now, in the passage you just heard read, we're pivoting again back outside the church where we're seeing increasing opposition. And persecution and dishonor coming from the outside. So let's jump in to Acts chapter five, verse twelve, into our passage for today. You know, my wife and I have been uh, married just over eighteen years now. It is eighteen, right? I got that right. Good. And people still, when we tell people we've met for the first time, we've been married for eighteen years, they're like, "Did you get married when you were five or something like that?" But um, well, that landed. Wow. <laughs> Anyway, the point of being married for 18 years, or just over that now, is we realized recently: hey, we have made a home together, the two of us, for longer than each of us lived in our own like family of origins home. Right? We've been together longer than we were each kind of separate, or at least in our parents' parents' houses. And yet, I'm still working on overcoming all of the bad habits and patterns of behavior that I learned in my parents' house. For instance, just one of many, doing the dishes. Yeah, I grew up in a house where each of us five boys had responsibility for one day of the week, and it was our job to do all the dishes for that day. And our parents were totally fine with us allowing all of the dishes to pile up throughout the day, usually in the sink, soaking in this tepid, soapy, goopy water with foodstuff floating all around in it until the end of the day at 8 o'clock before bed. Okay, you got to get the chores done, you know, get the dishes done before you go to bed course, it was fine if you didn't. You just got all of that day's dishes and all of the next day's dishes as well, and just let the pile continue to pile until, you know, the end of the day, and then you'd wash all the dishes. Anybody else? I'm getting like zero feedback from you guys on this. Now, my wife, on the other hand, grew up in a house where her mother was always doing the dishes, so many times I've been at my in-laws' place, and I've gone to the cupboard, gotten out a glass, put it on the counter, gone over to the fridge, opened the door, grabbed something in the fridge, come back, and the glass is being put in the dishwasher. <laughs> I'm like, I literally just got it out. She's like, Oh, I know. I saw it out on the counter, and I thought I'd clean up a little bit. It's like, <sighs> so <laughs> now I, okay, objectively, I look at it and I think that neither one of these approaches is right or wrong. Um, My wife disagrees. One of these approaches is definitely wrong. Her approach, her family's approach, is about maintaining cleanliness throughout the day. My approach is emphasizing the efficiency of doing all of the work at once. Right? Okay, thank you. Because first hour, I was getting booze. And... I was like, let's not even get into how much you're supposed to rinse the dishes before we put them in the dishwasher or whether like the knives go point down or point up or anything like that because I don't think I'm going to win any of those arguments either. But my point is, and we all get this, when you grow up doing things a certain way, it's not just that that becomes the habit or the habitual way you approach the world. It's that it actually changes the way you see the world around you. I, I literally can't see dirty dishes until the sun goes down. It's just, I mean, I, I can't, it's not that I don't want to or that I choose not to. It's that the data doesn't even enter into my rational thinking process. I know it sounds like I'm making excuses, but I'm not. I, I, I literally don't even see the opportunity, but my wife can't not see the dirty dishes, or can't sit down until the kitchen is spotless. So the idea of leaving a sink full of dishes in cold water to just sort of, you know, soak. Am I getting Yeah, she's trying not to throw up over there. Uh, that idea is, is not just reprehensive to her, it's implausible. It's unthinkable that you would actually run your life that way. Now, like I said, I mean, obviously there's no right or wrong thing here, but... Okay, there is a wrong way to do it, and apparently it's my way. But all of us grow up looking at the world through a certain, through a lens, through a filter, through a, a paradigm that's been shaped by the family, shaped by the culture we grew up in, and it, it actually affects the way we see the world around us and what we think of as plausible and implausible, what we could actually believe to be true and what must be rejected out of hand. Now, I know the right way to do the dishes is a fairly surface-level concern, but there are much deeper paradigms or ways of looking at the world that are confronted and transformed by our relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're seeing happen in this passage today, one of those confrontations between fundamentally different ways of seeing the world. Because the apostles, the leaders of this Jesus movement, are are following a king who is calling them to reorient their deepest values, their way of seeing the world, and in this particular story, to find honor in what the culture calls shameful, and to find shameful what the culture would have otherwise praised and called honorable complete reversal of values, and their first real chance to live out this reorientation comes because of yet another conflict with the Jewish religious authorities. So if you haven't already turned there, turn with me to Acts 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 12. It's on page 30. If you've got one of these purple Acts journals, I forgot to look up the page number in the Bible and the seat in front of you. So just hold up your phone and say, hey, Siri, turn to Acts 5 and, and see what happens. Now, by the time we get to the end of walking through this story together, my hope is that we will all be wrestling with our own sense of reorientation, feeling a bit of disorientation so we can reorient ourselves around what this passage is teaching, because this passage poses an incredibly difficult question for us. How... Willing am I to be shamed for the name of Jesus? That's the question question this passage forces us to ask of ourselves: how willing am I to be shamed for the name of Jesus? Or to flip the question upside down, put it a little more positively, would I be honored? if God considered me worthy enough to be publicly dishonored for the name of Jesus? You wanna tackle this question? Okay, I was going to say, hearing no complaints, let's move on. But uh, you guys are talking today. This is fun. All right, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16, kind of set the stage of this confrontation, and then we'll take the confrontation in two big movements. We've got the arrest and the trial, and then the defense and eventual release of the apostles. But let me first set the stage, because these first couple of verses give us a glimpse into the life of the Jesus movement and how it's being affected by the things that have happened before, the stories that we've been studying already In these verses, we see some really important developments. The apostles are continuing to perform signs and wonders and healings. The Holy Spirit continuing to empower them for this work of authenticating the gospel message. And they're continuing to meet daily within the temple complex itself, the the beating hearts of Jerusalem. They're still meeting right in the center here in this uh, sort of uh, kind of covered porch off on the east side called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. This is, that, uh, this is the place where when Jesus was in town and preaching in Jerusalem, he would often end up there uh, preaching and teaching. From these verses, we get a, a really clear picture of how highly regarded the Jesus movement is among the common people. People are coming to faith in Jesus even faster, more frequently, more often than they were before. And people in the small towns around Jerusalem are now starting to gather together as apostles are, I think, doing, you know, preaching tours of the towns around. They're gathering together, all of the sick, all of the disease, bringing them out in the streets, hoping that one of the apostles, Peter would be great, but any one of the apostles, when they come by, would see them stop, offer healing in Jesus' name but there's also a, a bit of this kind of folk superstition going on too that if well even if even if an apostle walks by and a shadow falls on the, uh, falls on them, that would be enough to heal them. Now the verses tell us that the the powerful in Jerusalem are becoming increasingly wary of this movement don't want to get close, uh, but the people, the common people, the majority of the people hold them, hold the apostles and those who are f- who are believing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the majority of people are holding them in high esteem, the verses say. Now, in a honor and shame culture, a culture that's largely built on maintaining an equilibrium of honor and social rank and capital, esteem is everything. It's your social capital. It's how you get things done, solve problems, And remember, when we're talking about the apostles, we're not talking about guys in white robes with golden halos that are sort of floating everywhere they go. We're talking about uncultured, uncouth fishermen and tradesmen from the sticks whose accents give away that they were not raised anywhere sophisticated. And these guys are somehow showing up the religious leaders on their own turf, stealing their followers, and preaching, in the religious leaders' eyes, heretical things that simply cannot be true, which is an insult, an insult to the honor of the leaders, an insult to the ordering of their way of life, and an insult to God himself, and they believe has to be stopped. That's what brings us to verse 17, where we pick it up with the arrest and the trial. Verse 17 tells us, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, uh, the main party in power at the time, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And jealousy here is an intriguing word because you could take the word either positively or negatively. If you take it positively, the leaders of, of the leaders in Jerusalem, the high priests, the Sadducees, they are jealous for the purity of teaching in the temple complex. That's their responsibility. What they're hearing is heresy. And they have just no way of seeing it as anything but. What they're hearing is heresy. They know it's their responsibility to stop it. So they're jealous to protect the honor of God and the purity of the preaching. That's if we take the word positively. If we take it negatively, it means they're jealous of the attention and the esteem that the apostles and this movement that believes Jesus is the Messiah, this Jesus movement, is getting. This is probably one of those places where it's both and. Uh, Both meanings fit. These leaders think they're righteously angry on behalf of God, which, of course, is ironic because they're opposing what God is doing in the world. But they're also unrighteously envious of the popularity of the apostles. And it's this combination, this stew that motivates them to have the apostles arrested and put in the public prison. Emphasis on the word public in other words, they, they make them do the, the perp walk. They, uh, they make sure to parade the apostles before the cameras, arrest them publicly because a public arrest destroys their credibility, brings an incredible amount of dishonor upon them, and hopefully kills the esteem with which the crowds are holding them. It's like, how can we trust these guys if they've been arrested? and are being tried for something. Eh, we should probably back away and you know, let the authorities take care of this. Of course, we, we read the whole story, so you know then something miraculous happened, an angel happens. An angel shows up in the middle of the night and releases them. Luke doesn't spend a lot of time describing that miracle for us because this is not an action movie and because the miracle isn't really the point. The point is what the angels tell them to do Next, which is in verse 20. So the angel releases them and then gives them this command, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. All the words of this life. In other words, guys, it's time to go right back into the lion's den. You might be tempted to kind of limit your preaching maybe into the house churches or let's do some small group Bible studies until you know, the, the heat dissipates a little bit. But the angel says, no hiding. Go right back to the one place where the high priest and the Sadducees have absolute control. Back to the temple. And once you get there, I want you to keep doing the very thing that got you arrested in the first place. Sound wise to you? Not particularly, but the apostles obey Immediately, first thing in the morning at daybreak, they're right back at it. And, of course, the, the verses that follow have this great scene of confusion and irony. It's, it's almost like a, a farce, like a Marx Brothers movie or something, what's going on here. Uh, as the high priest tries to get the trial started and discovers that the prisoners aren't in prison, he was like, where's the prisoners? Like, normally they stay where you put them, but not in this case. We can't find them. Eventually, they, they finally get the 12 apostles back Uh, back into the courtroom where the trial can begin. And unlike the last time, this trial has teeth. The first one was just a warning. And the last time the, the high priest charged them, hey, no more teaching in the name of Jesus. They were given a direct command by the highest authority, and they have now publicly flaunted that and are back in being tried for it. So it begins in verse 28. Say, hey, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, but you have filled the entire city with your preaching. Even more than that, the council accuses them of, they say, you you, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Meaning, everywhere you're going, everywhere you're preaching this message and telling people that we're the ones who killed Jesus, you're saying Jesus was innocent and we killed an innocent man. You are attempting to, you're accusing us of dishonoring ourselves by putting an innocent man to to death by a, a, a mistrial of justice. Now, if we try to see things from the perspective of of the high priest and and the Sadducees, what they're saying makes a lot of, of sense because everything in them is reacting viscerally and negatively to what the apostles are preaching. This is simply not how God works. And there's no way they can tolerate this kind of thing being preached in the temple. This is just like when Jenna walks in and sees what I've done with the dishes. There is no way that this is how it works. And we cannot tolerate it. It's just, But these guys are kind of like me. They simply cannot see things the way the apostles see them. Can't see it. They're looking at the same data, but the paradigm through which they're filtering it all blinds them to the possibility that this is actually God at work. And to see things the way the apostles do would be to admit that everything they've done in the last couple of years, from opposing Jesus to contradicting his teaching to conspiring to kill him to trying to squash the the Jesus movement, they'd have to admit that all of it was wrong, they would have to publicly shame themselves by admitting that they'd been wrong this whole time and bring dishonor on them and their families and their communities. It's just not plausible. It's unthinkable. They don't have a way of actually thinking about what that would look like, and they have absolutely no interest in being shamed for the name of Jesus. But Peter tries to help him make this shift anyway. We're moving now into the defense and the eventual release of the apostles. Peter is trying anyway. This is a a theme of every one of his sermons before the religious authorities. Like, you guys have got to see this in the way I'm trying to help you see it. Reorient your way of looking at how God works in the world. So look at the argument he uses to defend himself and the other apostles. It picks up in verse 29. Peter, the apostles, they all answer, well, we have to obey God rather than men. We have to, which is a major burn because he's saying to them, like, you guys don't, you're not hearing God. And we are, and we have to obey what God is saying. And then he goes on and continues to explain, you know, I I know you guys don't think Jesus was the Messiah sent by God because he was killed, because you killed him in a way that, that God has always said, you know, hanging someone on a tree is a way of saying this this person is cursed by God. And he says, I'm, "Yeah, I'm telling you that you guys are the ones who killed him because you." I'm trying to give you the opportunity to repent. This innocent man you killed has come back to life. He's been risen, exalted. He will now forgive if you'll just repent and come to him. It, it, they go on to say, like, we know this is true because we've been seeing it all happen. Even more than that, the Holy Spirit has been testifying that this is true. You know, the Holy Spirit, God's presence that He's put in us who obey Him. You can see why their, their response is one of anger. They were enraged. Peter is accusing them of missing God's clear actions right in front of them, missing it so badly they killed God when He showed up and he's telling them that they need to repent of what they thought of as defending God's honor. Do you want us to apologize for defending God? Do you, you want us to apologize for executing a blasphemer who claimed he was God? These guys are looking at each other and it's like, are, is, are they saying that we're so, us, you know, we're so bad at seeing God at work that we need a bunch of uneducated backwater hicks to clue us in? Like, seriously? So they're enraged and wanted to kill them, all 12. I mean, the the Jesus movement is hanging by a thread at this moment because all 12 apostles, remember, it's important to have all 12, that all 12 apostles could have been wiped out like that. If only this, this council could come up with a way of justifying to Rome why they want to kill 12 people when they're actually not allowed to execute anyone. So with everything hanging by a thread at this moment, there's another miraculous rescue. This time from a completely unexpected place. There's a popular Pharisee named Gamaliel. Pharisees don't hold much power in Jerusalem. They're a lot more powerful up in Galilee. It's the Sadducees in control here, but this Gamaliel is highly esteemed, held in high honor by all the people. He's got the social capital and he steps up, takes control, ushers the apostles out, goes into closed session, and tries to calm things down. And he gives a long speech, but basically he's arguing that like, hey, we've seen this before in the past when different people set themselves up and tried to make themselves into somebody. Kill the leader, eventually the followers kind of fade away. He's saying, give it time. This is going to fizzle out, just give it time. And if it doesn't fizzle out, that probably means that actually this is something God's doing and you don't want to find yourself on the side where you're fighting against God, right? Now, it's an unlikely defense from an unlikely source, but it calms down the court enough that they call the apostles back in, tell them, look, we said don't preach in this guy's name. We're serious about it. To prove we're serious, we're going to beat you, which they do, and then they say, okay, so... No more of this. Like, we're serious this time, and send them out. And that would be the end of the story, except Luke gives us, in in verses 41 and 42, he gives us the key to unlocking and understanding this whole story. When he tells us, especially in verse 41, then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, we don't live in an honor and shame culture in, in the modern West, or at least not a, a culture that is largely built on trying to maintain honor and social status and hierarchy before others. So uh, the, the juxtaposition of the words in this sentence you know, don't really grab us the way they might grab a, a Jewish or a Greco-Roman reader in the first century. But to... Rejoice in suffering dishonor is absolutely ridiculous. It's a total reorientation. It's seeing the world in a completely different way. In this type of culture, relationships are how you know who you are and where you belong. Social capital is how you get things done. You don't solve problems by... Paying money or appealing to law or justice, you solve problems by giving your name, identifying your family, relying on your social status, position, your social currency. So to suffer dishonor, this is just about the strongest Greek word for it, to suffer dishonor is to to have your entire social capital stripped from you, taken away, no resources left for solving problems, getting what you need in life, uh, even for knowing who you are and where you belong. Uh, Imagine that you lost your job and you drove home only to find that your house had burned down, uh, and then you got online somehow in this analogy, and discovered that your investments had totally tanked, and you try to call your friends and family to tell them, but they've all moved across the U.S. and changed their numbers and not given them to you. That's what it feels like to suffer dishonor. In That's what it feels like for someone in an honor and shame culture. It's disorienting. It's devastating. And they are rejoicing. They're rejoicing that in God's eyes, they were counted worthy. They were honored enough by God to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. They were honored to be dishonored, or not ashamed to be shamed even though it cost them everything. we got to ask ourselves, like, why? And it's because they had found a completely new source of honor in the name of Jesus, not in their own names, not their own social status or social capital. Their honor and value or their sense of worth and identity had, had shifted. They were members of a new community, the Jesus movement. They were part of a new family. With the family of God. And so they're happy to lose everything for the sake of the name of Jesus. Which is why nothing the council does or says to them dissuades them from bringing honor to the name of Jesus. They continue to teach in the temple and from house church to house church. Nothing deters them from preaching life in Jesus' name. But you know we're going to ask this. What about us? What about us? I mean, we don't live in an honor and shame culture like this where that's the dominant mode of thinking. But we're always doing the social dance, right? Doing the cost-benefit analysis of, oh, boy, but if I say something now or if I do something here, like, uh, it might come back to bite me and for a long time in, in Western culture, particularly American culture, a long time our culture has said that following Jesus is honorable. Living according to Jesus' teachings would actually elevate you in the eyes of society. But that's, that's less and less the case these days. And I think the, the reason so many of us are uncomfortable with this or angry about it or scared about the future is that we don't want to be dishonored for something we think should be considered honorable. Right? We don't want to be dishonored for something that we think should be considered honorable. We don't feel like we should have to risk being shamed for following Jesus. Do we? But if our world is becoming more and more like the world of the early church, then I think we need to learn to be prepared to be dishonored for the honor of of Jesus. I I heard a a pastor in a much more progressive part of the United States than Indiana uh, say recently that he was working on a new project on writing a catechism for social ostracization. Yeah, not a catechism to make us into big flightless birds, but a catechism to prepare us for what's going to happen when we're being dishonored for the name of Jesus. It's, it's a catechism to help church leaders, help followers of Jesus learn to lose their jobs well. It's resources for church leaders to help followers of Jesus learn how to lose their social standing well, to lose their community's respect well, because we're being adamant that the only way to true and lasting life is through Jesus the Messiah. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, that the application of this passage is that we should go out and seek dishonor from the world around us so that we will then get some more honor from God. That's not the dynamic of this story. The apostles aren't going out and intentionally provoking the leaders. They're doing what God tells them to do and inviting the leaders to then see things the way they do. So uh, the application is not, hey, go get online, stand up for the truth, just say it like it is, and and, so we can pridefully stand up and say, I don't care what you all think, I only care what God thinks. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, there's a really big difference between being faithful to Jesus and using Jesus to justify jerky behavior, right? Those are different But this story, at the very least, this story reminds us that the church, the church that we are part of, that we have been part of for the last 2,000 years, this church, if she's staying faithful to teaching the words of life, to faithfully speaking the name of Jesus, if the church is teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the only source of life everlasting, if the church is staying faithful to that mission, she will always be at odds with whatever culture she's in. There are going to be things that resonate, but there will always be things that are in opposition, that the church is in opposition to, some aspect of that culture. In fact, if our beliefs are never considered in some way offensive by an unbelieving world around us, we've probably neglected some key part of the gospel and softened it because we don't want to risk being ashamed for the honor of Jesus. Because the hope of the gospel is not that we transform culture so that we never risk having to be shamed for what we believe. The hope of the gospel is that the gospel transforms us so that we can rejoice when God says, yeah, you're worthy of being dishonored because you follow me. So question, is that what you believe? That following Jesus is worth being shamed and dishonored by the world we live in? And I don't just mean like the world as in, you know, the world out there, but I mean like the people you're gonna see at Thanksgiving and Christmas. People in your own family, people you love, is following Jesus worth being shamed and dishonored by the world around us? Do we believe, in other words, that, that being known and named by Jesus is better than being awarded and applauded by those who don't know him? So, back to the question we started with how willing are we to be shamed for the name of Jesus? Not how eager are we, how willing. Because getting to that point is going to require a whole shift in how we see the world. And honestly, I'm not sure I'm there yet. But I want to be. And for the sake of the mission of the gospel in the world we live in, I think we have to be. So uh, why don't we pray and ask for help? Lord, we, we confess that we need your help to have the same attitude as Jesus who did not consider equality with you as something to be held to, selfishly held on to, and used to his own advantage, but instead willingly humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, took on the form of a human being, became like us, and then even more humbled himself and submitted to the most excruciating death possible. But Father, then you exalted him to the highest of places so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. Father, to have that humble heart uh, eludes, it certainly eludes me and I think it eludes most of us in the room. And so we simply pray for your grace. Uh, May you empower us with your spirit because of uh, our love for the one who took the dishonor and the shame. Of our sin, so that we could be counted worthy in your sight. And may your gaze
0: of love be all that we ever need. We pray in Jesus' name.